we're talking about, uh, right and wrong, and uh, our role as Jesus-y follower kind of people, for those of you that are, uh, that, yeah, this is something that we have to think deeply about. And so this is the last of our Community of Memory series, and uh, it comes from a shaping story um, where we talk about the fact that, oh, Rod's just waving at some lady, oh, some lady, Susie, hi Susie. Um, I can't remember where I got up to because I'm very tired. <laughs> I think we got up to the point where I was talking about... Um, I think the, the last word was memory. Oh, memory. <laughs> um, we, we, have to think, like, we have to think carefully um, about our context um, and about what um, God might be calling us to do in amongst it. So this is, um, if you want another word for it, Christian ethics. Um, I'm going to begin by just talking briefly about the idea that Christianity is without doubt an embodied faith. What we do matters. So part of our tradition is believing that how we live in the world um, is a result of the relationship with God that we have and our understanding of the world. Jesus invited us to love our enemies, care for the vulnerable, refuse to be jealous, love others as God loves us. Um, these are all practical outworkings of a way of seeing our part to play in the world. How we behave is central to following Jesus. But the trickier question is knowing what faithfulness looks like. How do we know or how do we work out what is right or wrong as Jesus followers? Now, again, if you're not a Jesus follower here, that's totally fine. Just listen in on this strange practice and laugh at us. Um, sometimes it's really easy or feels easy to discern what the right course of action is, and sometimes it's a heck of a lot trickier. So I'm just going to run you through. Um, oh, yes, there's Rod and I. Um, ethics for Jesus followers, working out how to live. Most of us kind of in our history were presented with two options. This may not have been the case for you, but this certainly was for me and for many others. Uh, the first option, which is, was presented as the right one, of course, um, is what's right and wrong is always obvious as explained by God in Scripture. It's a form of deontological ethics. There's the sense in that um, every action has a very clear right or wrong answer, which is kind of encased in and of itself. Um, and that these, as, as Christians, that these um, ethics are given to us just by going to the Bible, seeing what the Bible says about the thing that we're trying to do, and then just doing that thing um, because God told us to. Um, scripture is seen as some form of instruction manual. So I found this very appropriately dicky um, image <laughs> says, has anyone heard this one before in their church history? God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Um, I prefer this even more arrogant one. If someone is quoting from the Holy Bible, it's not an opinion. It's truth. So shove that up here. Yeah. That's what's in the fine print. Sorry? Did Donald write them? Ah. Uh, I think they, they may have even preceded him. <laughs> I refuse to. We have any Donald Trump impersonators? 
Um, any issues with this? No? Well, that settles Good. it. Good. So, kids, have you got the morning tea? <laughs> um, maybe I'll talk about the second one, then we'll talk about kind of some of our snags that we hit. Second option presented to us, if you don't like the first one, then this is the only other one, okay? This is what the world does. Everything is relative with no grounding in absolutes. The murky underworld of the nihilistic, relativistic quagmire. This is what you're left with, folks. The argument goes that to question what we understand or what God says will immediately lead us into godless anarchy. Beware the slippery slope, folks. One minute you're asking questions, next minute everyone's marrying horses. If you take a walk outside, you'll clearly see that's what's happening. For me, as Christians, neither of these positions is entirely tenable, and neither of them are particularly honest representations of life either. The first one, uh, let's just talk really briefly about that. Well, you guys can talk really br- briefly about that. Um, what's right and wrong is obvious as explained by God in Scripture. Anyone hit any snags with that one? Oh, we're going back to Tish. I'll come to you this time, Tish, because you've already done one trip. I don't want you to get puffed. I just think that sometimes like scripture contradicts itself, so then what do you do there? Yours maybe. Yes. Oh, everyone's. Also, it's a very long book. Like and it's all in fine print. Um, and in order to find, like, right and wrong, you've got to commit a hell of a lot of time to looking for it. And most of us just don't have that sort of time, practically speaking. Yes, yes. Well, that's why lots of good Bibles have an index with all the, do you have a question about X? And then, yeah, so then you can find out. It's like yesterday we had a problem with the, the oven. The A was flashing on the screen. You just had to look on page 20, and it told you to press the plus and the minus button together. Page 20 of your Bible? Yeah. Wow, that's great. That'll be somewhere in Genesis, I'd imagine, then. Yeah. Oh, Daniel. Daniel knew all about the ovens. Um, I think also the snag I'd hit with this is that the people who say this often read the Scripture and what they think God is saying from within their current context, from when they're, when they're in their language that's translated into, um, and they forget that, you know, the scripture wasn't originally in English and that there's flaws in the translations and that we need to take into, con- like, into our context what they understood in their own historical, cultural context and go, okay, what does that mean for us now in our society? Which leads me to my second point. That's why you don't go to Bible college, because you just get all confused, okay? (laughs) Which is what I got told. Um, Anything to add here, Rod? No? That's good. (laughs) Not helping. (laughs) Not helping at all. Um, So the second one, the kind of relativistic quagmire, um, 
it doesn't really help us because, um, A, I don't think it's very true as um, the next best option. Um, but secondly, we can't commit to just doing whatever we want uh, because, again, Christianity is an embodied faith and there evidently is some sense within it of what we do really matters. So, um, I'm going to use a couple of images here. So the first option I kind of called the tightrope, that um, there's a very clear path that God's called each and every person to follow at all times. Um, and it's always obvious and clear. And your job is to stay on the tightrope without wobbling off, because if you foot off, put a foot off, um, then God will beat you senseless for all of eternity. Sound good? Um, and the second option is the void, which is essentially, whoa, there is no meaning, there's no right and wrong. Um, and you've got to choose between those two. I will add something, and that is that, yeah, so we, in our conversation about this, we're kind of framing these as two sort of locations, two unchanging locations that you can occupy. You can either occupy the one where everything's really clear or this other location where nothing is clear, where everything's up for grabs all the time. And um, what we came to, and this is uh, where we move now, is the fact that the Christian vision of ethics is not about occupying one location or another location, but is about a journey yeah, and a vision that we are pursuing. So we've kind of, we might find better phraseology for this later, but uh, for the moment we've just called it an unfolding vision, that God is leading humanity and always has been leading humanity on a journey to what is loving and beautiful and good. And it, within this vision, as we go, and those who went before us come up with rules and guidelines which act as useful guides for our time, which we need to sit carefully with and hold the traditions of the past carefully, but also understand that they in themselves are not God. At all times, we... oh. Here we go. Um, rather than a precise instrument manual, sorry, an instruction manual, we read the story of the Bible as God at work amongst humanity. By observing the arc of Scripture, we attempt to see what God was up to then and find clues of what God is up to now. One of the um, major issues with the kind of first um, point of view that we expressed is that uh, ethics in the Bible shift all over the place all the time. <laughs> and a flat reading of that. Um, if, you, if you're just looking for a verse to apply to a situation, you don't necessarily see that because you don't necessarily dig that deep. But within Scripture, embedded within the narrative, there are massive arguments about all kinds of things and different people declaring different things right and wrong. Um, now, there's also a heck of a lot of um, agreement within Scripture about particular things, but there's also diversity as well. Our best picture of this practice is Jesus. And throughout scripture, tradition, history, and our own experience, we can see God at work. Um, <laughs> you can look forward to that in a minute. <laughs> Rod missed it. Um, <laughs> nip, nip. Tightrope. Um, rules are timeless. Discernment and, inher ad and adherence is the end goal. Unfolding vision. At all times, we are open to where God is leading humanity with an eye to the past and to the future. 
Rules are the best improvisations at the time, and tradition should not be overturned lightly. But all are subject to where God might be leading us. All improvisations should align with what we know of God's character. Uh, another way of thinking about this is that it's, it's not that we're saying that there is no objective truth. It's not that we're saying that God is not a particular way. It's just that we're saying that we're being humble about our access to God. We're being humble about our access to truth and recognizing that just as was true for previous generations, our knowledge of truth and our knowledge of God, our vision of God is only ever going to be partial, that there will be things that remain dark to us and that we need to be humble in acknowledging that. Um, but so it's a balance, I guess. It's a balance of, of accepting that there are things that we don't know, um, but also not giving up on the fact that there are things that we know. Um, so um, I was listening to the very lovely Rob Bell the other day. Um, he's, too, he's too enthusiastic. He's very enthusiastic. He's an American. Um, but he was talking about this balance between accepting all these things that we don't know, and, but also remembering that there are things that we know. And he, he talked about things like, you know, is it, is it better to be generous or is it better to be stingy? Um, we know which of those is the way we should go. Is it better when there are more people included or is it better when there are more people excluded by community? Is it better for there to be more justice in the world or less? Is it better to forgive or is it better to hold tightly to our bitterness and to our resentment? Is it better for us to seek to know ourselves and to live out of that truth or to spend our lives trying to live out other people's versions of ourselves? I mean, these, there are so many things in our lives that we are very clear on, um, but not everything. There are still lots of things that are not clear, um, lots of things that are improvisations, lots of things where we face options and we literally cannot decide what it is that God would particularly have us do in those moments and that that's, that's okay. Does that make sense so far? Are there any questions, observations, objections, points of order? So I just want to um, talk briefly. I'll get you to hold on to that. I'll just talk, talk briefly about the, the anxiety that that can produce. So if what's great about Susie's got the beer, that's great. Um, what's, what's great about feeling like there's right and there's wrong and I know exactly which is which um, is that it can allay anxiety about how to act we feel like we know exactly what we are to do. And if we, if we hold to this other vision that sometimes things are clear, sometimes they are not, that rules are kind of improvisations often that are maybe that work in our context but um, that are evolving, it can create some real anxiety for us. So I just want to talk about two things that I think help, help us with that anxiety, help to allay or address that anxiety. 
Um, the first is for us to think back to some of our previous weeks when we've discussed what God is like. Um, because if God, if God is a punitive God, um, that English teacher speaks of punishing, um, if God, God is a God who is looking to punish us, who is standing above us as a judge, looking at us on our tightrope and waiting for us to take one step in the wrong direction so we kind of plunge into punishment and beatings, then that is an incredibly anxiety-producing vision of God. And it means that the motivation to be incredibly clear on what is right and what is wrong is very strong because we don't want to cross that God. Um, We don't want to get it wrong. Whereas if God is actually a kind and loving parent who in every moment is seeking to redeem any wrong steps we take, any dangerous or damaging steps that we take, is seeking to do everything that God can to turn to the good and the beautiful and the true, whatever it is that we choose to do, then it completely it allays that level of anxiety about getting things wrong. Um, I remember this great illustration I heard years ago, um, this um, a speaker talking about a friend of his who lived in um, the north of the United States and in winter it got so cold that the ground froze and every plant in their garden would die. And so every spring they would have to completely replant their garden. And he talked about visiting this family in spring and watching this guy um, and his three-year-old daughter working together in the garden and that... Um, The daughter wanted to do everything, so the daughter would dig the hole for the flower and dig it twice as deep as it needed to be um, and then go off to get the plant. So he would frantically put soil back into the hole to make it the right level. And then she would come back grasping this plant by its stem and crushing most of the life out of it. And he would sort of gently take it from her and place it in the hole and kind of bind up the stem to try to, to restore this plant to life. Um, and as he watched this, he's, he said, that's exactly, that, is, that is what us participating with God is exactly like. It's us kind of in our improvisations, doing good things, doing bad things, doing, doing sometimes things that um, create unintended destructive consequences. And yet God is not standing over us judging that, but is participating all the time in ways to redeem that and to bring life out of those actions anyway. And it means that the point, the point of our working with God is not to, to please a punitive and judgmental parent, but to delight in the opportunity to participate in the work of that parent, to be invited into into that work. It completely shifts the way that we perceive what it is that we're doing and our understanding of ethics. Ethics ultimately is about us working with God in this process of mutual delight. I guess the second thing to remember is that we have never and will never get it 100% right anyway. that, That vision of there's just right and there's wrong and we just have to choose the right and reject the wrong. 
We were never in that place. We might look back to our adolescence or to our early 20s. I know some of you are still there. Um, and we might, we might say, I felt, it felt so clear and it felt so simple and straightforward then. And that's gone now. And there's that sense of grief of, um, was that actually the way things were meant to be? No, it wasn't. That, it's a necessary phase of your development to feel like you're able to get it all right. But it's not where you're meant to stay. And it's not actually true that you're getting it right. I remember this time when I was about 19, 20, and I was leading a youth group and having a conversation with um, a lot of other people in, in the youth group, probably in their mid to late teens, um, and we were talking about abortion, as you do. And so I told them what I considered to be God's view of this issue, um, what scripture would have us do in relation to this issue, and to me it was very clear and the most important thing was to be clear on what we had to do so that everyone could then go out and know what was right and what was wrong about this issue. And not for one second did it occur to me that any of the young women that I was talking to might have had an abortion. Not once did that occur to me. Because that's what we do when we try to get things right, when we follow the tightrope path. We bracket out all the complexity. We bracket out all the systemic abuse that we are implicit in. We bracket out all the complex interpersonal dynamics. And we make it really simple so that we can get it right. But we're not getting it right. We're doing a lot of damage. And the the incredible irony of this Christian ethics is it's when we let go of the sense that we can always get it right, that's when we begin on the journey towards getting it right. It's only when we accept that we are enmeshed, we are caught up in all of these destructive systems of oppression and violence, um, that we're just born into and yet that we contribute to all the time, that we, especially as straight white men, that we benefit from all the time. It's only when we accept that, that we confess that, that we are in any way able to begin to follow the journey towards kindness, towards being on the side of justice and being on the side of love. Um, and it's also about, I guess, humbly acknowledging that as, as we look back to previous generations and we see all the things that they got wrong, um, acknowledging that future generations will look back at us and say exactly the same. How could they be so blind about these things that were just so obviously wrong? And that's as well where the, this view is different than the kind of enlightenment narrative of you know, now that we have rational thinking, everything's getting better and better and better. Um, just understanding that things that, you know, we look back on biblical times and go, that's barbaric, how could they get it so wrong? There are things that they had right <laughs> that we are completely missing. Um, views of economic systems uh, we, that we participate in that enslave millions <laughs> through the leverage that we have. 
yet refusing to participate in the Old Testament idea of jubilee, which releases debt. Um, so before we kind of get on our high horse about going every year is getting better and better and better, it's more complex than that too, because things that our tradition have once learned, we have lost, um, and we're getting wrong again. Um, so, yeah, like I think we have to be very careful about the kind of trap of chronocentricity of, of thinking that our time and our place is, you know, the kind of high point of all of history because it's it's not. Mm. Do you want to do the divine missionary or leave that? Nah, who needs them? Um, all right. Any observations, questions, roadblocks, handbrakes, steering wheels so far? Glad I've got this microphone. <laughs> um, I mean, firstly, I'm very thankful for the two of you and the space that is here. But I think one thing that um, I find hard is still being connected to and loving people who are black and white and not knowing how to um, love them and show them that the way that I see right and wrong is also justified <laughs> under Christianity and going, oh, I can be a Christian and my point of view is also right, maybe righter than yours, not that I want to go there, but um, how to coexist alongside people from a black and white worldview in a way where I think you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Please. That's exactly what I've been struggling with, particularly in the last little while, um, and having a personality type one, who gets angry um, as her shadow, um, <laughs> I have felt really ashamed of myself when I've expressed that anger in front of people and um, gone away wanting to beat myself up about it because I felt that it wasn't a, an expression of who I really truly am. But this week, um, I went to this amazing contemplative circle based on Aboriginal Dadiri and also on um, Aboriginal symbols and quiet, deep inner listening and um, uh, still awakening. And I discovered, I read in it, <laughs> I picked up the card of the rainbow serpent and I thought, oh, why did I pick up that serpent? And then I started reading and I actually read my personality in a way that I've never been able to. Um, embrace it before, but I also read the, the downside of it, and it, in a way that said to me, you know, you can hit people like a thunderbolt, and they aren't as aware as you are aware of the situation, and I real and that it, it said use temperance. That was the answer. Use temperance. So in expressing what you believe and what you feel deeply, use temperance, and then you may not so much put them offside like I so many times and that to me was so God-given and so such a gift from God to help me be free of getting really riled up especially with people who call themselves Christians but where I was don't forget I, I also have to keep remembering I was back there with them not so long ago I think also this is a good example of what we're talking about that often there is no like I think often there's a balance to strike between exactly what Pam's saying, that um, 
we need to forgive ourselves for the phase of life that, you know, and we need to embrace and be kind to ourselves, the person that we were that was like that, the person that I was that was telling young women about abortion. Um, but we also, there is also a time for that anger. There's also a time if we feel like what someone is saying is actually doing violence to someone vulnerable right in front of us, that, that we have to advocate on, on behalf of that person and we have to say, that's not okay. Um, and it won't always be clear which we're meant to do in which situations, and that's okay. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> the, where possible, where we have the strength and energy to, to see the humanity of the people that we're brought up against. Um, an example, we were, Rod and I were at a Churches of Christ conversation around same-sex marriage um, last week, and uh, there was lots of really interesting discussion going on and then this guy hops up at the end, um, talking to a room of people who have wrestled really deeply with this issue and said, just in the most patronizing, have you ever thought that sometimes Jesus says no? And you're sitting with people like myself who have spent years and years wrestling with incredibly complex arguments and stories and all kinds of things. And honestly, the temptation to punch him was like so strong. Not because of his opposing viewpoint, that's okay. But just the patronizing tone of going like, I bet you've never thought of this before. Um. But what follows that is to go, if I actually care about his humanity, what is my commitment to following through on actually inviting him into the process? And he may not be willing to listen, and that's okay, that's his choice. But what responsibility do I have to invite him into my world of understanding and to try and better understand his world of understanding? One of the barriers to that is I feel like I already know <laughs> his understanding, but I may be wrong. Anyway, oh yes, the snowball begins. Rod, you said something uh, earlier that to me, um, you know, was a real nugget of gold. I had quite an emotional response to it. And I, I guess the question will be, uh, if you could unpack it for me. When talking about unfolding vision, this idea of God as a kind and loving parent who seeks to redeem turn me to that which is true and beautiful. Um, what does the word redeem mean? I, 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 yeah, I, it's such an attractive word to me. I had an emotional response to it. And I don't want to put you on the spot either. But um, could you unpack that a little bit? Well, for me, it's kind of, in a sense, it's just the simple idea of that... Um, that God is wanting to, I mean, as we've said in the past, our, our belief is that God is not coercive, that God doesn't often intervene to overrule or brutally change stuff, but that God is always calling every aspect of every situation towards the good. And so redeem in that sense is that whatever choices we're making, God 
is seeking to, to shape, whatever direction we move in, God is seeking to shape that around or bring that around through non-violent, non-coercive ways towards a path that is heading towards what is God's goal, and that is a world that is liberated, a world that is um, where love wins, where justice is throughout all of creation. Um, so that obviously the more we align ourselves with that, the less there is to redeem. <laughs> the more we align ourselves with, with that direction that God is trying to take creation in. Um, but, but that for all of us, God is, whoever we are, that God is always seeking to call us towards that direction. And if um, we act in ways that are destructive of ourselves and others, that God does not abandon us even in those situations, but is seeking always to be calling us from that back towards that, that direction of love and justice. Does that make any sense? And sometimes that call will be loud and firm. That sometimes God will confront us. Um, so, like, I think the danger we fall into is this kind of, like, hippie parent that, like, just never has any sense of boundaries and never pushes against our impulses. And I think that's selling God short, too. I don't think we need to choose between a violent God and a God that has no boundaries, but that we do need to take the violence out of the God that seeks to restore and redeem us. And my belief is that we will be confronted by God at times in, in ways that may offend us. Um, but that's very different than God's intention to be to go out and cause violence against us because we overstepped a mark. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Shane. Um, it's just a, another idea of the tightrope and um, holding vision, um, another analogy that I heard many, many years ago, and it really, really helped me. Um, so my tightrope vision used to be like walking along the top of this mountain, this not cliff, um, mountain ridge, you know, and, and you could fall off either side. And um, and somebody said to me, well, Gus, why don't you just reverse it? Why can you, you can't think you're on a train track, like, you know, you're walking along a path, but the, the rail sidings are going up either side of you. And those are like God's guiding hands. And actually, to fall off the track is quite hard because the track, the, the sidings are going up and it's protecting you. And if you do come off, well, you know, there's something there to stop you completely tumbling down. And I found that really was a transition for me because I had grown up with this tightrope on the ridge. You know, if I fall, I'm going to fall right down to the bottom. And this really, really helped me. And I think it goes hand in hand with this lovely vision that you said about the, the gardener and the, the little girl. You know, God delights in us. And, and the more I grow, I grow garden um in understanding that i delight in being with him and realize that the sidings are protecting me yeah. i think that that also underlines the role of imagination that in the christianity i was brought up in there was so little space for imagination but to realize that that if 
things have hold of your imagination and that if you have a different relationship with God, you need a different imagination. And I remember I had a similar conversation where someone talked about the idea of a landscape, that it's, it's, not, it's not one path, but that God is seeking to create this landscape of grace that we move across and where we can actually go in all sorts of different directions and still stay within the good. Um, and that our own creativity, our own imagination, our own impulses are part of that process. It's not that God has this one predetermined path for us, but that there are all sorts of paths that we could take that are still within the bounds of grace and that God can still move towards whatever it is that God wants. That, that that's, that's the beauty of, of us being created with creativity and with choice and with particularity. And even just adding to that, the kind of humility of going, God can possibly only change so much in each generation. Um, if you look at the arc of sacrifice across Scripture, you start with, you know, a, a, a context and a culture where human sacrifice is happening regularly, um, and then Abraham goes to do that, and his hand is stayed um, and kills an animal instead. And we kind of talked about this during the kind of sacrifice Gerard series. If you want to go back in the archives a little bit. Over the arc of Scripture, there's this kind of back and forth about the role of sacrifice ending in Jesus where um, he is the end of sacrifice. So, you know, Isaiah is prophesying that, you know, that, that, that God doesn't even want our sacrifices um, but wants mercy instead. And so there's this, like, long arc over hundreds of years moving away from the idea of a, an angry God in the sky that needs to be placated through blood. Um, moving towards Jesus being the end of sacrifice. So it, just having the humility of just going, you know, if we think that we're getting everything right or even can, like um, our capacity in one generation to go right, now we're nailing it, um, it's probably pretty small. Yeah. Okay. We're going to skip really quickly through. This is just kind of for those of you who are interested in a little small case study of Christian ethics. Um, <laughs> okay. Try and say that 10 times fast. Gentile genitals. <laughs> um, this is just a particularly interesting one um, because you know some of you, um, yeah, may not may not re- realize quite how um, that the early church was stuck with the same predicament as us, of God seeming to do new things and trying to work out what to do with that. This is the big case study of the New Testament, the, the largest ethical decision that got made in the New Testament was, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? I know it seems so strange, and who even cares? But to faithful Jews, what had God said the entire time throughout their history? That to become, for for an outsider, for a Gentile to become part of the nation of Israel, to become God's chosen people, to be brought into the family, the pathway through that is genital circumcision. (laughs) And that was a no-brainer. Yet for the early church, God started doing strange things with these outsiders and foreigners, and suddenly they were overwhelmed with this massive rush of influx of people who wanting to be Jesus followers. And then some of them are like, right, line them up. Who's got the oyster shell? Um, We need to get circumcising. And others were going... (laughs) I don't know here. So what resources did they have at hand as they confronted this? Um, 
what does Scripture point to? So obviously they only had um, a Hebrew Bible. But what, what lines of argument, what encouragement, what examples were set before them in Scripture? And again, if you look back through Scripture about this, there's two sides to this. One is very, very firmly um, suspicious of foreigners and outsiders. And the, the clearest thing, the clearest statement on all of this in the Hebrew Bible is the push towards circumcision being the way in to becoming um, part of the family. Next, what has God done in the past? Well, God made everyone get circumcised to be in. But at the same time, as Paul later argues, Abraham um, was a Gentile himself and got included in. What has God done amongst us? Well, this community had received this very strange experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, in, in, right in the early passages of Acts, which to them was some kind of sign that God was at work. What has God done amongst them, the Gentiles? Well, this is the surprising bit, that God seems to be giving them the same gift of the Spirit that they were getting. That wasn't supposed to happen. You weren't supposed to get God until you were in the family. What might they have heard from God? When Acts 10, Peter has this vision where God tells him to eat some unclean animals, which is an absolute no-no. And Peter says, of course I can't do that. And God essentially says, you're telling me? And then he goes to the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius' whole household receives this gift of the Spirit. And Peter's going, and, and Peter's going well, God isn't excluding you. How can I do so? And so the conclusion was this. Acts 15, 28, and 29, the council that was making these decisions said this. Listen to how authoritative the statement is, the largest ethical decision in the New Testament. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Now, that baseline that they gave was the minimum requirement for Jews and Gentiles to be able to fellowship together. If Gentiles were eating, um, according to their code, if Gentiles were eating um, food from um, strangled animals, then a Jew would not be able to be in the same building as you and certainly couldn't eat with you. And so as um, a token of generosity, they said, stay away from that so that it's not a problem for you to all gather together, but you don't have to get circumcised. That's like a humongous decision to say it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. That's a massive ethical shift. Um, I guess why I wanted to highlight that is because many of us have been raised with this idea that things have always been how they are and nothing has ever changed, so don't ask questions. And that is just untrue for all of church tradition, but also embedded within Scripture, and that's there for a reason. So is our job to follow the conclusions laid out for us or to follow the process at which the early church followed? And I'd argue for the latter.
and we have to because the Bible doesn't know what to do with stem cell research or nuclear armament or genetic modification because it, because it couldn't foresee these things. A world without slavery was impossible to imagine for someone in first century Palestine. So we have to have some kind of process. Do you have anything to add to that? I'll show you my quadrilateral. Um, <laughs> you show me yours. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, this is a somewhat flawed and needs nuanced um, framework for ethical decisions, um, but it's a really helpful one and a really good introduction to such things. But um, this is, wasn't actually created by John Wesley, but like was based off some of his teachings. But um, it's this idea that we, in making ethical decisions, we need to bring together the best of tradition, scripture, reason, i.e. making sense, and experience. And somewhere in the midst of those things, we are able to discern while we trust what God is doing amongst us, that God will give us some kind of leading. And I guess the other important thing in that is that you don't do it alone. Um, that we're such an individualistic culture and that we need to let go of that and to start discerning together as a community um, that this is not enough. We also need community. Anyway, people are falling asleep. What's a so quintilateral? <laughs> the yeah. quintilateral, yes. The Rod's quintilateral. Are we done? So th- <laughs> this is one of those mornings where Rod and I were talking beforehand going, if we rush through this, it's going to seem like we're not taking it seriously. But if we talk at depth about it, we're going to bore the crap out of everyone. So hopefully um, we've hit some kind of middle ground, but um, maybe not. We'll find out. Hopefully we've done both. (laughs) Hopefully we've done both. Missed huge chunks of important information and bored everyone to tears. Um, And maybe Meg was right. That was terrible and no one wanted to hear that. But uh, there we go. We do do think about ethics and um, we need to continue to do so. Yeah.